If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. This week, a reunion is taking place in New York. Over 150 world leaders have flocked to the Big Apple for the United Nations General Assembly. They'll be rubbing shoulders in real life this year. It's the first in-person meeting after two years of COVID-related disruption. Ukraine, climate change and the energy crisis are all on the agenda. And so too are the ravages and ramifications of the pandemic. Coronavirus put the brakes on the UN's Sustainable Development Goals in areas such as health, education and living standards. But for gender equality, progress hasn't just stalled, it's reversed. In New York this week, Seema Bahus, the executive director of UN Women, had a grim assessment of the outlook. We gather, ladies and gentlemen, at a time when global gender equality and women's rights are in acute danger. Education is not only a critical tool to combat this, it is the means to fundamentally improve the lives of women, girls, families, and whole communities. We must hold each other accountable for doing so and safeguard our progress. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, why is progress on gender equality slowing? It was just seven years ago that each of the 193 UN member states signed up to the Sustainable Development Goals and agreed to try and achieve them by 2030. My guest thinks it's time to change tack. Melinda French-Gates is one of the world's most prominent philanthropists and co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which she runs with her ex-husband. The foundation has an endowment of more than $53 billion, which makes it the most powerful charitable organization globally. If the Gates Foundation were a government, it would be the 12th biggest disperser of foreign aid between Italy and Switzerland. French Gates has championed women's equality for decades, so as politicians roll into town for the UN General Assembly, she'll be calling on them to do more for women. She believes that is the engine of growth for all. Melinda French Gates, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. You've just published the Gates Foundation Goalkeepers Report. It measures the progress in reaching the UN's Sustainable Development Goals set out in 2015 to be achieved by 2030, or at least that was the theory. We're now at the halfway point, and you're very open about the fact that it isn't going as well as you anticipated. Why do you think that is? I think none of us could have predicted the global pandemic that we've all just been through and are still going through. And it had enormous health shocks, but also economic shocks. And then on top of that, we're having these conflicts around the world. So we're seeing a setback, unfortunately, in these goals. And we think it's important to be very transparent about what's going on. And yet say, we had seen progress before, it's still possible, but this is the state of the world. This is where we are today. But as it stands now, as you say in the report, 
progress would have to be speeded up five times to meet most of these goals. Doesn't that imply that they were rather optimistic in the first place? Some of the goals were definitely overly ambitious, and some of them were ambitious, and some were reachable, right? And anytime you set a goal, you want it to be ambitious, but you want it to be reachable. The truth is that with the pandemic, health systems shut down. Girls left school and haven't gone back. Women's lives and livelihoods got crushed, and they got pushed out of the workforce in droves, and there was nobody to take care of the children. So you had these shocks upon shocks upon shocks. And so we are where we are, and it's time to start looking at, okay, what do we do and how do we build back and start again on this track of progress? And that subject of gender economic equality and the pursuit of that is is one of your great personal causes. Now, under the goals as they're set out, the aim is to achieve parity around this by 2030. And as you point out, it wouldn't be met until 2108. That's a massive gap, isn't it? And I'm sure you'll say a lot of that comes back down to the impact of the pandemic. But what are the other great barriers that you think are standing in the way? Well, I think we weren't making the right investments or enough investments on gender equity before we entered the pandemic. That's the truth. I mean, we have to look at root causes. Until we really look and peel back the covers to say, what's going on in society after society? If we don't do that, we will never make the right investments. And so finally, we are as a world collecting gender data We didn't even know much before about women's lives around the world except what they died of. That is just a sad fact. But now, finally, we are collecting gender data. Even in places during the pandemic, like the Kenyan government, started to do a time-use survey of how are women spending their time. So we're unearthing all the unpaid labor we expect women to do, caring for the elderly, feeding the children, caring for the children. And until we go at those root causes, for instance, safe and affordable childcare, women can't enter the formal workforce or they can't keep up their informal sector job, much less start a company. So we've got to look at these issues and we need to invest in them as a world to pull down the barriers and then to accelerate women's progress. You say that very confidently, but how much do we know about what women themselves want? What I know is that women want to be able to make decisions for themselves. So if a woman decides that she has the economic means to stay home full-time and that's her choice, that's a fabulous choice. She ought to take that decision and make that decision for herself. If she wants to work full-time and have children or not have children, she should be able to take that decision for herself. If she wants to do both, she should have that decision. But nobody should make the decision for them. And today, society is making the decision for them. Because if a woman chooses to have children and she would like to work, she doesn't have good childcare options in most places in the world. Even in my own country, in the United States, the childcare sector almost collapsed during the pandemic. Women are struggling in my own home city of Seattle to find childcare. So what I know is that women want to reach their full potential and they want to be able to take decisions for themselves and have the economic means to do what they want to do in their own family lives. 
You just returned from Africa this summer for the first time you were able to go there since the, the pandemic, visiting women, I think, in Rwanda and in Senegal. Tell me a bit about the conversations that you had there about economic freedom and what that meant to the women you spoke to and also, candidly, what they thought was stopping them from getting it. So I met in Senegal, for instance, with young woman who had started business with her female business partner to collect rubber tires off the streets of Dakar, Senegal. So they're no longer breeding grounds for mosquitoes. They're crushing them up. They're selling them to cement factories, the grinds. They're selling them to go under soccer fields. They have so much demand, they can't meet the demand with the supply they have. But what these women talked about was the same thing I hear from women in the United States, which is, it's really, really hard to capitalize my business. And so what I'm hearing is women with all these great business ideas, whether they live in Europe, they live in the United States, they live in a country in Africa, but less than 4% of venture capital, for instance, goes to a woman-led business. And yet, we know women have great ideas for businesses and are great businesswomen. Is there a touch of self-criticism here? And I'm wondering if philanthropists and even the Gates Foundation itself has been a bit slow on enabling women. Absolutely, there's self-criticism. You know, I look back and I say, how did I not know when we started the foundation in 2000 that, you know, when we started our programming, the truth is we should have started everything we did and put a gender lens on it. And it took until 2012 and then 2015 to really say, gosh, if we're going to get the most out of our investments, just take in malaria. We have hundreds of millions of dollars of investments in malaria. What the head of the malaria program will tell you is we get more out of our malaria investments by looking at the gendered piece. Who hangs the bed net in the family? The woman. Who decides who sleeps under it? The woman. So that was a blind spot on our part as a set of philanthropists back in 2000, and we have corrected for it. But to be honest, it took us 15 years to get there. That's a lesson for us as philanthropists. You've talked a lot about the burden of caregiving on women and how it affects their ability or their potential to earn money and ultimately control more of their own lives. And you say in the report women will never have full economic power without real caregiving infrastructure. What does that look like? Well, I think it can look very different in different places, and it can be a whole mix of caregiving solutions, right? So I'll give you a great example out of Kenya. I met a woman, Sabrina, and she has started something called Kodogo, and she has basically set up a franchising model where she has female entrepreneurs who set up these small creches, often in the informal settlements, so that women have a safe, affordable place to put their child. They can go out and work. And guess what? These female entrepreneurs, they call themselves mamapreneurs, set up a business and are making money off of childcare. That is a win-win for society. And so I think there's all kinds of ways in a society to do childcare, before school, after school, whether the kids are too young to even be in school. But we've got to look at all forms of that and make sure we support it and support it well. Despite high-level advocacy, progress has been slow. So if I was to ask you what are your three most effective policies, what would they be? The three things I would do are get girls in high-quality school and keep them there all the way through. Number two, I would make sure that every single woman was educated about her body and had access to long-acting contraceptives. And number three, I would make sure that money gets into women's hands and into a digital bank account. 
If you did those three things, you would unlock empowerment around the world. How did women enter the workforce in Europe, in Peru, in the United States? It was access to contraceptives. Once they could space the births of their children, and if they chose to limit them, then they could work and get on their feet economically. You uh, took us there to, to contraception, and of course that brings us into the more fraught territory of abortion rights and reproductive rights as they're affected uh, by abortion and the right or, or otherwise to an abortion. Now, the Gates Foundation stopped short of funding abortion services in, in the past, and I think you once described it as a political hot potato, which is quite some understatement as it turned out, uh, looking at what's happened, of course, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. So would you now make the decision to become political and start funding abortion services? Well, what I've always said is that I believe women should be able to take the decision on when and whether to have children. That is not a government decision. That's a personal, private, family decision that should be made. Now, where I use my resources that I think I can be most effective are trying to make sure that the 220 million women who already know about contraceptives and are asking us for them. <laughs> so to me, in terms of resourcing, where can I put you know, millions and millions of dollars down most effectively? It's on long-acting contraceptives, and that is what we do through the foundation. Then the other thing that I do through my company, Pivotal Ventures, in the United States, is I'm trying to make sure that we plow far more resources and money into getting female politicians. Until we have equal number of female and women in positions of power, we won't make the right policies in our countries. And we aren't. It just sounds to me like you're sidestepping whether or not you would want to get involved with funding abortion services or counselling in any way. I don't fund abortion. I do not think funding is the problem today in the United States. I think policy is the problem in the United States. And do you feel that America's, I think you've said it's taken a step back over Roe versus Wade. Does that make it feel like a less good place to be a woman? I think any time you have a country step back for a law that's been on the books for women's health, that is absolutely a step back. And yes, I think women feel the crisis in the United States. It's why you're seeing women are starting the roles of who's signing up to vote. We're seeing the numbers skyrocket for women. So we'll see how women answer that in the midterm elections. With labor force participation, there's a cultural aspect and, of course, many trade-offs. In some ways, your situation is similar to many of our listeners. You've had to juggle a career with a marriage and with children. Do you think we quite understand yet how to unite these pressures? And what's been your own handrail to understand that better? I talk to a lot of families, men and women. And I think, you know, we all have different ideas, but we all want to live our hopes and our dreams it's very personal inside of a family. Do you put one career before another? Maybe you do that for a while and then you put the other person's career forward. They're absolutely pressures and they're trade-offs if we have children. We don't necessarily get to have everything, right? You know, I'm still juggling, even though I'm an empty nester, you know, they come in and out of the house. One was home this summer and you were making trade-offs. I make trade-offs every day about do I work or do I spend time with my kids and my friends? So I think these are felt lived experiences but I think there are also societal barriers that tell us a woman should do certain things. 
And the truth is, she doesn't have to do those things. Why should she have to be the one who puts the meals on the table or cleans up the dishes or does the laundry? Who decided that? <laughs> Last time I spoke to you, I just remembered, actually, when you said that. I remember you told us then that you thought you had to be very careful with allocation of chores and roles, everything from the who does the dishwasher. Is that still something that you've thought about? I mean, your domestic circumstances have changed, but some of this remains the same, right? Definitely. And what I see are young couples, if they choose to be a couple, they're making those decisions before they enter the marriage and making it thoughtfully. They go online, there are all these surveys now, and you literally check off who's going to do what, who's going to take out the trash. So it is in our households, but it's in our communities, it's in our societies, it's in our social norms. Why would we even assume in a low-income country that a boy goes to school and not a girl? Why is that a a fair assumption? It's not. Take in a high-income country now, you don't really question whether a girl should go to school or not. It's like girls and boys go to school. We've changed that social norm. But we've got to relook at a lot of our social norms. And part of it is we don't see women at the top of society. Once you start to see women at the top of society, you start to say, I expect there to be more female prime ministers, more female presidents, more female finance ministers. But until we see it, it's harder to change our minds that it's possible. I'm getting a strong sense of advocacy just around women from you, almost as if you, that's something you want to double down on. And you had said when you announced your divorce from your ex-husband that you would say as co-chair of the Gates Foundation for, I think, about a two-year trial period. How is that going? And do you feel able to do that? There is that sense of you, I don't want to say coming out of your shell. I don't think you ever in a shell. But there is some sense of a perhaps a slightly more autonomous vibe. Am I on the right track? I'm a founder of the foundation. I'm a trustee of the foundation. My values are baked into the foundation. And we now have a board. And, you know, what I know is that I'm free to do whatever gender work I want to do inside the foundation, right? And I know that we will be better as a foundation if we do that work, and we are better, and our partners are better. So I feel very free to speak my mind, to move resources, to make sure the board feels comfortable, my other co-trustee feels comfortable. We make those decisions still together as a set of trustees. Do you think it's likely that you will then stay in perpetuity with the Gates Foundation? I have no plans to do anything otherwise. The Gates Foundation was renowned for its data-driven approach to philanthropy, much of which was down to your ex-husband, Bill. But it has been noted recently, including by The Economist, that you've been the driver of a rather different approach, more holistic, more humanised. Is that because you think philanthropy became too reliant on data? And what are the merits of this more human-led way of looking at it? I think we need both. And I think if you look back in the field of philanthropy over 20 years ago, there really, in many areas, wasn't much data. That's just the truth. I think those data systems have come along. It's how we can measure progress. But I think there's kind of a middle ground there where the data is only telling enough if you understand the human stories behind it. It's the two coming together. It's the quantitative and the qualitative together that gives you the full picture of how do we invest in creating change. Because that's really what philanthropy does with government and civil society and partners is we are trying to create societal change to move society forward for the better. If we were to have you back in another few years on the show, I think it's been about uh, three years, 
Do you think that we will have made some progress on gender and uh, economic equality as a result of, of the light that you, among others, are shining on it today? I think we will absolutely have made some progress. I think it will be spotty and in different places. But what I know is if we invest in women, they invest in everyone else. So we need to get money in their hands, in safe digital wallets. We need to invest in their businesses. We need to help them build up credit. We need to make sure there's a childcare system so that they can actually work and run their business. But I absolutely think I would be back in three years saying we have made progress in some places. We'll catch up with you then again, I hope. Melinda French-Gates, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And I'd love to know what you think, apart from that big ticket philanthropy, what will it really take to move the needle on gender equality? Write to us at podcasteconomist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. Melinda French-Gates raised the question of how the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade will influence America's midterm elections. For more on that, have a listen to our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. The team travels to Michigan to hear from voters in the state and speaks to a congresswoman about how the issue is shaping her re-election race. You'll find that episode wherever you get your podcasts. This week, The Economist reports from the United Nations General Assembly and takes a look at Joe Biden's foreign policy performance. You can read our dispatch on our website. And the best way to enjoy all our journalism is, of course, to become a subscriber. Sign up today at economist.com slash podcast offer, where we have a special introductory rate for our listeners. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alessia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling-Condon. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.